0: Good morning church, I'm Pastor Josh Seal, and it is a blessing to be here with you this morning. I am grateful to have a church family that loves the Word of God and has a hunger to learn from it each week as we come to gather together or to gather in in homes to uh, learn from God's Word. Um, so with, if you would, please turn with me today to Luke chapter 9 and look to verse 28 through 36. That's Luke 9, 28 through 36. That's where we find ourselves today. And as you are turning there, if you've been with us the past four weeks or so, you, you know that we are now moving into a new section. After spending the past four weeks uncovering what it really means to follow Jesus in Luke 9, 23 through 27. So now we find ourselves in this new section. And as we begin this new section, I pray that God will use it in each of our lives and in our hearts to mold us and sanctify us more and more into the image of Christ. Here at the Field Church, as we follow God's word, and teach it week after week, we understand that the word we are handling is not merely man's words. It's not um, just a book, but it's, it's God's words as we see in 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And for that reason, we must handle it with great care. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. And so rightly handling the word of truth, rightly handling God's word is what we must do. And we understand that from a prayer uh, from Jesus is that it is what sanctifies believers. It's what builds them up and molds them and makes them more and more into the image of Christ. And Jesus, Jesus prayed this prayer as we find in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. His word is good. God's word is good. His word is true. His word is holy. So for that reason, we are careful in how we teach it, while at the same time, we do not hold back the truths that we find in God's word. As Pastor Sam explained last week, there will be times we will take one section all together. Um, times, we will take bigger narratives, larger narratives, or we will take smaller narratives at times. Um, we will even, like we saw in the past four weeks, we'll take one verse each week, breaking down that one verse, going in depth to find the, all the truths in just that one verse. So there will be times where we do that in different ways, but it's all to be faithful to the text, to take it as it comes and, and be faithful in presenting it to the church. Today, as we come to our passage our new section. We will take the whole section together, all at once, at the best, uh, as to best see what Luke's purpose is in writing about God's glory flowing from Jesus, His Son. Also, we will see an important connection between the last two verses of last week's sermon, verses twenty-six and twenty-seven. They are very important as we look to the passage today. In verse twenty-six. Jesus, as he's speaking, he says, the son of man coming in his his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels speaking to his second coming. That is what Jesus is talking about there in verse 26. He's alluding to his second coming when he's coming and God is coming in the fullness of their glory, his glory. And verse 27, Jesus says, some will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Some will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And today, in our passage, we will see Jesus fulfilling that promise that he made in verse 27. We will see a preview of the king's glory, a preview of the kingdom of God. So before we read our text today, before we read our section Let's spend some time praying and asking God that he would reveal all the beauties within his, his word and that we would be faithful in how we approach his word today. So let's pray. Father, I, I thank you just for this day, for this time that we have to gather together, Lord. Um, whether we're in community groups or at home with our families, Lord, um, I just thank you for the technology that we have. I thank you for your word, how we have it so readily available and how we have the freedom to open it together and to read it and study it, Lord. I I praise you and thank you for that. I pray that as we look to your passage today, Lord, that we see what the transfiguration is, that we see uh, your glory bursting forth, flowing forth from Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray that it will be uh, a day that we fully embrace your glory lord that we embrace you as uh, our savior and that we embrace you embrace you as our god father i pray for all these things and i pray for uh, us as a church lord that you would uh, that you would bless us that you would be with us today lord and that um, we would see the truths in your word in jesus name amen okay so please look down with me now to luke chapter 9 as we begin In our passage today, it's Luke chapter nine, starting in verse 28, and we'll end at verse 36. Read with me, if you would. Starting in verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now this is, this is a, a lot of verses. We have a lot of verses to cover here today. Um, but we see that this is a beautiful and perplexing passage. Where not only do we see Jesus and his appearance being altered, but we also see two men are present with him. We know these two men very well. It's Moses and Elijah. We know of them. We've heard of them. And we also know that that these two men that are present with him, they're not physically present here on earth, or they're not supposed to be at least. For Moses, he died and was buried by God himself, as we see in Deuteronomy 34, six. And Elijah was taken up by God himself in a fiery chariot, and a whirlwind in 2 Kings 2, Elijah not even tasting a physical death. But we find them present here in glory, speaking with our Christ. So it's perplexing. It's, it's something that we need to look closely at the text today. Um, so we also see, towards the end of our passage today, we see a cloud coming down and a voice coming out of that cloud. There's a lot to cover here, a lot to look at, so let's look closely at the text so we may understand all that took place on this day. As we look to verse 28, you may have noticed in your Bibles before above verse 28 that that this section is titled the transfiguration. Transfiguration meaning a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful, or spiritual state. That's transfiguration meaning a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. And as we just read the whole section, the whole passage, we've just read and seen that there is a clear change in the appearance of Jesus, a more glorified, more beautiful state, more spiritual state. And so Peter, James, and John, They were all there and they were witnesses to it. They witnessed it and uh, as we look to verses 28 but on, we'll see exactly why they were there. In verse 28, Luke wrote, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James. So in the gospel of Matthew and Mark, they both address this account. They both write about this same account. They concur that Peter and John and James were eyewitnesses of the account, but they say this occurred six days while Luke's account says about eight days after the previous sayings. I must address that, that this is not a discrepancy that we find in the text, but rather Luke is accounting the day Jesus made this promise as well as the day that he fulfills this promise that we see in the text today, in our text. But Matthew and Mark, they're accounting for the days in between. The days in between that he made the promise and the days, uh, the day that he fulfilled it. They're counting the days in between. So let's look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now Luke's account, when he's accounting, he's accounting for that day. In his count, he's saying that this day is a part of the count. And then also he's saying that the text that we have is part of the count. So there's eight. Matthew and Mark are accounting for the days in between. There's no discrepancy there. God's word is true, inerrant, and good. And so now as we look to the other details in verse 28, it says, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up onto the mountain to pray. Jesus often went on top of a mountain to pray or to spend time with his father intimately with, without crowds around him, to have some special intimate time with the father in prayer. The text does not specify which mountain it was, but uh, tradition holds it to be Mount Tabor. After looking through, through maps and, and locations of, of where Mount Tabor was, uh, it's very highly unlikely that this was the mountain. Uh, for Jesus and the disciples during this time, as we find in Matthew 16, uh, 13, they were in the district of Caesarea Philippi and Mount Tabor is nowhere near that area. But many actually hold disbelief. They, many believe that Mount Hermon, which is near by Caesarea Philippi, uh, be, many believe that Mount Hermon is the mountain that all of this took place, uh, that this, this great miracle, this great sign uh, of the kingdom of God that was revealed here, many believe that it took place on there. But really, that's not the most important part that Luke is portraying here. Uh, the most important part, at least in this verse, is the men that he took with him—Peter, John, and James. So let's look and see why Peter, John, and James were the ones who were accompanying Jesus. These three men—Peter, John, and James—have been and will continue to be the most, uh, the apostles most closely. Trained by Jesus, they were his inner circle of apostles. in luke eight fifty one, it was Peter James and John, who were the only disciples allowed to accompany Jesus when he healed Jairus's daughter. If you remember, we covered this not too long ago. And in mark fourteen thirty two through thirty three, also found in in Matthew and Luke, but Mark gives more clear clearly who was there. in mark fourteen thirty two through thirty three, it was only Peter, James, and John who Jesus took with him when he went to, the, to pray in the garden of Gethsemane, right before he was arrested. So there is a very important reason why these three men are the only ones with him to witness his glory. They will be men who devote the rest of their lives, even to the point of death, laboring for him and telling people of what they have witnessed with their own eyes. They will proclaim the kingdom of God until they die. That's what these three men will do because they are witnesses of it. They will proclaim it and so will the other apostles from hearing about their witness. Now, look with me to verse 29. In this verse is where we find our first point. Verse 29, look to it. Uh, Our first point is the king shines in his glory. The king shines in his glory. Here, Luke, here in Luke, it says, the appearance of his face, as we see in verse 29, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. In Matthew's account, it says, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Matthew 17 too. Mark says, in Mark's account, he says, and he was transfigured before them and his clothing became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Mark nine, two through three. As we see these three accounts together, it is, one, it is of the utmost importance that we understand what this transfiguration truly shows. In the Old Testament, God manifests himself in the form of light, or cloud or fire. In Exodus 33 through 34, God's glory passes by Moses on Mount Sinai. And it is so bright and so powerful that Moses could only see the backside of his glory. For if he saw the front side, he would not survive. Also to mention when when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, he is, is glowing from his face so much that they had to put a veil over his face for it was too bright to be around other people. It, that was God's glory on him. But we also see in Exodus 40, we see the glory of God dwelling in the holy of holies as it comes down, as he comes down. And John says, in John's account, John says God is light. First John 1.5 says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So we must ask ourselves this question, what is this light that's bursting forth from Jesus? What is this alteration? What is this this radiance coming from Jesus? What is it? Is it the glory of God simply uh, being, it is the glory of God. This is what it is. It is the glory of God manifest in Jesus as his son. You see, Mark says his clothes became radiant, intensely white as so no one on earth could bleach them. That's Hebrews 1, 3a. Let's read Hebrews 1, 3a. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We see radiance used in Mark's account and in Hebrews. The radiance of his clothes, it radiates bright, bright white. And in Hebrews 1, 3a, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 1, 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. You see, this beauty, this light bursting forth from Jesus is not simply the father's approval of Jesus or shining on him. It is God's glory shining from within him for he is God's glory and the fullness thereof. Colossians 1.19 says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In this verse, verse 29 of Luke 9 we find the reason this section is titled The Transfiguration. If you remember earlier, I defined the meaning of transfiguration as a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. This alteration of Jesus' appearance is the glory of God manifest from within Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the glory of God. He is the glory of God. While God's glory was bursting forth from Jesus in verse 30 and 31, uh, we find, and it shows us the men, who the men were talking with. They were talking with him, and, they're, and that's where we find our second point. We see Moses and Elijah are these two men. So our second point is titled, The King Speaks of His Glory to Come. The King speaks of his glory to come, as we see in verses 30 to 31. In verse 30, Luke identifies these men as Moses and Elijah. At least that's how he wrote it in here. But I did wanna ask myself this question and I felt the need to is, how did they know who they were? At least how did Peter, John and James know who they were? Did, did they carry a sign telling them uh, who they were or did each of them have a name tag on saying, hello, my name is Moses or my name is, is Elijah? No, of course not. They didn't have signs. They most likely introduced themselves which would explain why Peter offers to make three tents, one for each of them. And if they didn't introduce themselves, then Jesus told them who they were. Nonetheless, they were were told who they were. That's how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. And so we see that, that Peter offers to make a tent for each of them. We'll get to that in a little bit. But in the beginning of verse 30, Luke says, and behold, the Greek word, is it do? That's how you would say the Greek word, it do, meaning behold, or it brings attention to, it exclaims that sentence. It says, this is important, pay attention. Um, so we're looking at this and we see that this is a big point. We need to pay attention to this. Why? Why are Moses and Elijah there? There's a very important reason for that. Now, as we previously talked about Moses and Elijah, we know that they are no longer residents of the earth. Verse 31 says, they appeared in glory. That is their glorified heavenly state. Because of this, we know this is not the first time Moses and Elijah would have spoken with Jesus. And you might, you might say like, what do you mean? What do you mean they've already spoken with him? I've, I haven't read that before. Um, so the reason why I say they, they have spoken with him is because we understand and we believe here at the field church that Jesus is God. He is manifest in the flesh. Jesus is God. He is the word of God. The word became flesh. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's John 1, 1. So for Jesus is God and he has been present on earth. Jesus has only physically been present on earth for the last 30, 33 years. Moses and Elijah have been with God for hundreds of years now and would have spoken with him long before this day. Their purpose for being here, Moses and Elijah, is to discuss the departure, which he will soon accomplish. Let's look to that verse again. Verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem or at Jerusalem, So they were speaking with Jesus about his departure, which he will soon accomplish. His departure meaning his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. This is what they were speaking about. But why Moses and Elijah? That's still a question we have to ask. Why are Moses and Elijah there? What's significant about them? There are many great men of the Old Testament. Are there not? There are many. But these men are among the two greatest, Moses represents the law and the giver of the law. Elijah represents the prophets and the protector of the law. And they are meeting with Jesus, Jesus who fulfills both the law and the prophets. So we see that Moses is there. He is the giver of the law. God gave it to him and he gave it to the people. Elijah, being one of the greatest prophets, the one who held God's word, it held his law true and protected it. And Jesus, being God manifest in the flesh, is the one who fulfills both, fulfills all things. And so the Old Testament, we also know this, the Old Testament is commonly referred to as the law and the prophets. And so these two men played a very, very important role in God's plan. And in the law and the prophets, we will see in just a second that the law and the prophets Speak about Jesus. They foretell Jesus' death, and they speak of Him. This is such a beautiful testimony, something that we need to understand and grasp, is look to me to John 5:30 through 47. That's John 5:30 to 47. I'll give you a second to turn there if you want, but it will be up on the screen. Um, so let's look at John 5:30 through 47 and see how Jesus explained that the Old Testament scriptures bear witness of him. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me. Listen to this part. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. This is important. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in my name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I know that was a lot, but I believe it was necessary to read. We see that Jesus is speaking right now, as we just read, he was speaking to them about himself. He was showing them that they are rejecting him, the one in whom Moses was writing about in the Old Testament, in the law, in in all all of the Old Testament and New Testament, all of it points to Christ. And I think one of the most scary words there for them during that time was, I'm not gonna accuse you to the Father because there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. But Moses was writing about Jesus just as the prophets do. They're all, they're all pointing to him. And we'll see, I'll show us a few. I will show a few different areas within the law and the prophets that bear witness of Christ. I believe this will help us to see the significance of why Moses and Elijah were there. Let's look, uh, we won't turn here, but Exodus 12:1 through 28, if you have time, I encourage you to go read it. Exodus 12:1 through 28 describes the feast of the Passover. Now, the Passover during this time in Exodus 12, 1-28, it was around the time when Israel was about to be delivered from Exodus. Many of you may have already heard about the plagues that came through and this Passover one was the final one. And it had a very, very significant uh, point that actually still is, is celebrated today. The Passover, it was to set up a type of Christ, one that gave the Hebrews an understanding of the use of, the perfect, of a perfect lamb as a sacrifice, the blood of which would protect those under it from the wrath of God, the angel of death. The Jews were to prepare for the feast by removing all leaven from their homes, symbolic of removing sin from their lives. Paul writes, the apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ is our Passover lamb. Uh, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The f- sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the sins of humanity was not an afterthought of God. You see, he, he's already given us examples in the Old Testament as we just saw in Exodus 12. But this was not an afterthought. Christ. Dying for sins of humanity, those who would believe is not an afterthought of God. It's not plan B. It was always plan A from the beginning. There is no plan B for God would not fail. There was no need for a plan B, only a plan A. That is why Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus of what he was about to accomplish. He was about to accomplish it. They were saying, bro, the time is near. You're about to accomplish the plan of salvation. Just, just come and talk to you before it's here. He was about to accomplish it. Wasn't, a, wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't something that was about to surprise him or something that was possibly going to happen. Just possibly, no, it wasn't that. This was something that was most certainly 100% going to happen without question. Something you aim to achieve or accomplish means it is part of your plan all along. This was the plan all along. This was God's plan from the beginning. Revelations 13, eight refers to Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Why would he be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world if it wasn't the plan from the foundation of the world? It was the plan all along. That's the point I'm trying to get across. And we're gonna look at a couple of, of Old Testament texts, some from the prophets and, and, uh, and some from uh, the law to see just how that is the reason why Moses and Elijah were there. And that is uh, they were speaking about Christ. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. We won't read all of it. It's a lot, but Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, I encourage you to go read this. It offers one of the most profound prophecies in the entire Old Testament, written over 700 years before Christ's death and resurrection. We won't look at all of it, like I said, but let's look to Isaiah 53, three through six. Starting in verse three, it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. Every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is one of the prophets that are clearly speaking of Christ and his death. Clearly speaking of this day that they are there talking to him right now about that he's about to accomplish. This was a prophecy that Jesus was about to accomplish. Luke twenty four, twenty-six through twenty-seven says, Was it not necessary? that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This was Jesus speaking after he rose from the dead. He first goes to to appear before people that really don't recognize him right away. They don't don't really know. They're still uh, sorrowful and and, uh, really grieving the loss of Christ but then he explains to them here, as it says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then as he was there with them, he began with Moses and all the prophets. That's the Old Testament. He began with that, interpreting it to them, all the scriptures and the things concerning himself, speaking about Jesus. So here it says, Jesus used the law and the prophets, as I just said, and explained their bearing witness about him. There are so many more that we could see, but time would escape us. We wouldn't have time in, in trying to cover all of these. Um, so we're gonna move on to, to verse, and look at a few more things in verse 31. Um, so let's look. Verse 30 and 31, Moses and Elijah and Jesus are discussing what has already been prophesied hundreds of years prior and what has been planned from the beginning. Now they are simply discussing the accomplishment of God's plan drawing near. It's close. And so they're just talking about it. They're discussing it. And while they are discussing it, we have Peter, John, and James. They are there as witnesses of this all, of all of this. In verse 28 and also 32 to 33, we have our third point. Our third point is the King's glory witnessed. The king's glory witnessed. A big reason that Peter, John, and James were present was because Jesus promised that some would see the kingdom of God before they taste death. Tasting death in Jewish terms was a physical death. So in verse 27, when he says, there will be some standing here today that will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. He is speaking of a physical death. There are some of you who are living right now that will see and witness the kingdom of God before you actually die. However, in addition to this, we must also note that, in keeping his promise, as well as keeping his promise, it was also Jewish custom, according to the law, Deuteronomy 17:6, Deuteronomy 19. 15, and also we find it in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, 2 Corinthians 13, 1. It was common, Jewish tradition, and according to the law, to have two or three witnesses in, in order to be trustworthy and hold weight when explaining the truth to others about any kind of account. For people to believe it, for people to trust it, for it to be valid, it, there needed to be two or three or more witnesses about it. So let's look with me, if you would, to verse 32 and 33. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. So as we see here in verses 32 and 33, when Peter, John, and James became fully awake, when they they came to, it was probably late, they saw his glory. They saw Jesus' glory. This was the very moment that Jesus' promise from verse 27 was fulfilled. Jesus said some that were standing with him on that day would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That's verse 27. In verse 32, Peter, John, and James were the eyewitnesses to the kingdom of God, bursting forth from Jesus in glory. They were the ey- eyewitnesses that Jesus spoke about eight days ago. In verse 32, Peter, John, and James were the eyewitnesses, as I said, to the kingdom of God, bursting forth from Jesus. And as we read in verse 33, Peter is the first of the apostles, of the disciples to speak up as he often is. We, we know that many times Peter uh, is caught putting his foot in his mouth or, or saying something that he shouldn't. Um, but here, I, I think he, I believe, I truly believe that he had good intentions. He was not being arrogant, I don't believe. I think he was so awestruck by the glory that he was seeing that he didn't want this to go. So read verse 33 with me again. Verse 33 says, and as the, as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So as Moses and Elijah were leaving, they were about to leave, uh, Peter makes a suggestion. He offers to make three tents, one for Jesus and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now these tents, it would represent uh, something as if they would stay in place. Peter wanted to to stay here. He was saying it's good, it was good. It was good for their faith, strengthening, strengthening their faith greatly. It was very good for them to be there. But in his suggestion of making tents, he is quite off. That's why Luke says, not knowing what he said. So Peter, when he wanted to make these tents for them, he was saying that, we need, we want to stay here. He wants to stay here. He doesn't want to leave. He wants to remain here. So he's witnessing the kingdom of God. And it's the best thing that he has ever witnessed in his life. And he doesn't want it to go. But we see that that's not the plan. That is not the plan all along. That's not how it's supposed to be fulfilled. Peter wanted it to stay. He didn't want it to go. He wanted these tents to be made. He had a lot of humili- humility in this. As we see in Matthew's account, he, he asks, he requests, if it's good or if you, you want this to happen, Jesus, then, then we'll make tents. He also didn't say that let's make more than just three so I can dwell there too. He, he knew that he wasn't in that state, that it was just for Jesus and, and Moses and Elijah, but that's not a part of the plan at all. Uh, before the kingdom of God comes to remain, the Christ must be pierced. Before the kingdom of God comes to remain, the nations must be reached with the gospel. Before the kingdom of God comes, there will be suffering, as we learned so well in the previous sermons, the past four. There will be. You see, before the kingdom of God comes, Jesus must die as the prophets said he would. He must be the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, as we just read. And he must die as the sacrifice for sin. He must be the Passover lamb from Exodus 12. He must be the perfect atoning sacrifice, which replaces permanently the blood of bulls and goats, as seen in Hebrews 10. It was not time for the kingdom of God to remain. This served to strengthen their faith so they may know no matter what happens to you, no matter what, How bad it gets, no matter if you are being persecuted or even put to death, which they will be, glory awaits you. Peter was crucified upside down. James martyred. John exiled and persecuted. The majority of the apostles were martyred by this moment. This served to strengthen their faith. The majority of the apostles were murdered, were were crucified, were killed for their faith. But they will know that no matter what happens, this is not the end. The kingdom of God awaits them in their faith. In verse 34 through 36, as we move on, we will find our fourth and final point. The fourth point is the king's glory heard. The king's glory heard. Audibly, they heard it. While Peter was saying these things, a cloud saying these things that he really didn't understand. He didn't know exactly what he was saying. A cloud came and overshadowed them. This cloud that came and overshadowed them scared them greatly. They were terrified, they were frightened. It overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. As Matthew's account says, it was a bright cloud. This is this is brings the thought, at least, that it was much like the cloud from Exodus chapter 13, which led the Israelites by night. This was the presence of God, and and Peter, James, and John were very afraid. In Matthew 17, 6, it says, When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. I also want to make clear that Peter, James, and John were not in the cloud. It was Moses, Elijah, and Jesus who were in the cloud. We know mainly from the Greek, but we can also see this in the English. Let's look. Verse 35 says, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. The voice came out from inside the cloud, indicating Peter, James, and John were outside of the cloud, hearing the voice. So they were outside of it. They're hearing the voice come from within. And the voice from God says, "This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him." Matthew's account says, "This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him." This was also prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18:15. Another account that is just verifying who Jesus is and how the Old Testament and the prophets Attest to him. They they talk about him. Deuteronomy 18:15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. While they were terrified and their faces were toward the ground, probably bowing down or in the fetal position, because they were terrified. We see from Matthew's account that Jesus comes and he touches them and says, rise, have no fear. We also see in verse 36, it says, they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. That is because in Matthew 17, nine, Jesus commanded them, "Tell tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. We do see that that later after Jesus is raised from the dead they do speak on the matter. Obviously we have it here in the in the gospels, but why do they have to wait? Why are they not to speak yet? Weren't they there for the purpose of being the eyewitnesses that would then proclaim it and tell others? Why must they wait? There could be many reasons that I could I could think of uh, that we could really find uh, evidence evidence and proof from in the text, but I think one of the main reasons is that the Jews, they wanted a great leader. They wanted one who would overthrow Rome, overthrow their oppressors, not necessarily a king that they would worship. If they heard of this amazing testimony, they would try to take Jesus by force and make him king as they tried to do after Jesus fed the 5,000 in John 6. But we see Jesus says, just wait a bit. After I raise from the dead, you can tell everyone what you have seen here this day, but just wait a little while longer. It's, it's coming near. After I raise, you can tell everyone. We see Peter and John's account, uh, they, they did write about it. Peter and John did, but James, uh, he was killed before he could write about it. The book of James that we have in our Bible, the book of James is actually written from Jesus's half brother, um, not the apostle James. I'm sure sure that the apostle James spoke of it before his death. It may very well have been what led to his death. Um, But we do find John's account. So let's look and and see where, where John wrote about it. John 1 14 says, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace. This is, we have seen his glory. We have seen the glory, the glory as of the son, the only son from the father, full of grace. John's account is right there in the beginning of John. They've seen his glory from the son, full of grace and truth. And in Peter's account, we find it in 2 Peter 1:16 through 18, um, I wanna say it was about a year ago, we, the men, several men from the field church um, started to memorize Second Peter, the whole book. And um, this was in the early stages of it. Um, so Second Peter 1, 16 through 18 is clear as day. Peter's testimony of what occurred. Let's read it. Second Peter 1, 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Jesus is the Christ of God. He is the light of the world. He is life. Romans 10, five through 10 says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. These are another. This is another testimony of Christ. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, God's word here, the law, the prophets, Psalms, the New Testament, everything that we have is a testament to Jesus. And truly believing in him and confessing Believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth is how one is truly saved, not by living a good moral life, although we are called to live an honoring life to God. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's by faith and believing in Christ through his word. John 6, 45 through 51 says, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. everyone one who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is speaking about Jesus being the bread of life because his flesh that was sacrificed on the cross is when we truly believe and confess and believe in our hearts that he is that sacrifice, we will be saved. He's saying he's the bread of life. There's no other way. John 14, six says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. There's no other way. It's only through him. Acts 14, 12 says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be be saved. It's only through Jesus, only through Jesus Christ and the law and the prophets testify of him. Today, we have seen Jesus as the glory of God, and he truly is the only way for salvation. I pray that all of us believe that wholeheartedly. Jesus is the glory of God. Today, in our section, we saw a preview of the glory of God, a preview of the kingdom of God, and what a beautiful text this is. So let's Let's thank God and let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we had today to to come together and to pour into your word, Father. I thank you for it. It is such a beautiful thing to have. Father, I pray for everyone who uh, is, is in this text today with us, Lord, that they would meditate on your word, that they would see the beauty in this, that they would see your glory in your son, Lord, that they would truly believe it and embrace your gospel, Lord. I pray that everyone here would embrace your gospel, Lord, and see that you are the bread of life. You are the only way. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through you. So Father, I pray that for everyone today, and I thank you for this beautiful text to show your glory through your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.